Turn to James chapter 3, and we will pick up where we left off before Easter. When we were talking the last time from James, we talked about the tongue and the teacher, and we discovered that the tongue is a very powerful force, and we too often use the tongue negatively to instill doubts in people's minds, to destroy a home, to crush a child, to terminate a long-time friendship, to ridicule another's convictions, to assassinate another's character, to utterly ruin someone's reputation or ministry. That's the bad side of this powerful force called the tongue. But we can use it for good as well, to preach the gospel to the lost, to teach the truth to those who are in error, to bring life to those who have no hope, to build up the weak and to strengthen the needy. It's all a matter of purpose and how you use it. We also discovered the tongue is a revealer of our heart. It's not what we say that makes us sinners, but rather what we say shows our sinfulness. With these things in mind, we looked at James and his warning that came as a command, don't be many teachers. Don't let many of you presume to be teachers, because there was a run on teachers, it seems, (laughs) that James was addressing. And to be a teacher is to take authority. And hopefully, if you're a godly teacher, it's not your authority, but it's God's authority. He didn't say, don't be any teachers. He just said, don't presume to be many teachers. The church needs teachers, and God has given the church gifted teachers. But James was stemming a flood of those who clamored after the position of teaching. His warning included the sobering fact that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. That is something that I am reminded of every time I teach. That the things that I say are important and that I will be held accountable. In fact, all of us are held accountable for every idle word. That is a terrible verse. Right? I mean, how convicting. In this way, James was echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew 15, where he said, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And it's those things that defile the man, because out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, etc. And again in Matthew 12, he says, for by your words you will be justified, And by your words, you will be condemned. So our words are very important. The way we speak is very important. And as teachers, you need to be doubly careful. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the rest of James chapter 3, where we were, and looking at the tongue. It's the largest portion of Scripture uh, addressing the tongue in the Bible, 
And it's very, very important. And I want to pick up at verse 3 and move on through. Let me read it to you, verse 3 through 12. Now, if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by very small rudder wherever the indication or the inclination of the pilot desires. And so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and curse. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have seen fit to give us this instruction through James on the tongue and the use of speech. And we are grateful that it's so clear and so practical. Father, we confess to you that we stumble badly in the use of our tongue, whether it be in our marriage relationships or with our children, at work, with friends. It is a restless world of iniquity. And Father, we confess that to you and we ask you to continue to transform us more and more into the image of your Son and that our speech would reflect a regenerate heart and not the way we were before we once believed. Let us bring glory and honor and praise to you through the speech that comes from our lips, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to talk to you today about four elements that we see here regarding the tongue. And the first one is that it's small in size but big in impact, verses 3 and 4. If we put bits into a horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct the entire body as well. And ships also are the same. They have a small rudder, though they can be very large. So in this section, James provides two witnesses to establish the truth that he is teaching. And it's very, very Jewish that he would do such a thing. Because in the law, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter will be established, we're taught from Deuteronomy 19.15. James used two analogies as his witnesses. Small bits in the mouths of large horses and small rudders guiding a large ship. Now, Word of God addresses this concept 
in other parts of the Bible where he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Don't be like the horse or like the mule, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle. It's taken from Psalm 32. So in David's day, these same concepts were there. The thought behind this verse is that the bit and bridle in a horse's mouth is a harsh way to guide, a way to do away with the rebelliousness of the horse and to bring the horse into line with the will of the rider. But God prefers to guide us with his eye. But it's still quiet voice. The whole picture is of a heightened sensitivity to God and his will for us rather than forging ahead in defiant and independent fervor to do what we desire, causing him then to use the bit and bridle of chastisement to bring us into submission to his will. And he will. I used to use the illustration of of God, you know, the still quiet voice, maybe from the word of God or from a sermon. The spirit of God taps you. You know he's speaking to you. You're thinking about what you need to change in your life. And it's, it's a still, quiet voice guiding with the eye, or let's say with the ear, right? He's guiding through what you're listening to or reading. And if we don't respond to that because God loves us and wants us to walk according to his will, he continues the process and he might tap us and encourage us in the way that we should go. And if we don't listen to that, He might give us a slug in the arm. Now, the transition of the Spirit's ministry of encouragement and comfort is now turning to one of chastisement and scourging, if you read Hebrews chapter 12. It's all for our love and for his glory and for our joy, but there are different methods that he uses to bring us into line. You see, when God doesn't control our tongue, it can go totally out of control. Totally out of control. And sadly, when he doesn't control our tongue, he's unable to use it or us for his glory. So these are important verses. They're very important for us to get a hold of. Now, the small rudder on ships, that's another word picture that he gives us. And it brings to mind uh, an illustration I heard of the Bismarck. Uh, the largest battleship in the German fleet during World War II. The British were aware of uh, this new Titan. It was a big ship that came into play in the war, and she was spotted by an RAF Coastal Command Spitfire just two days out of port on her maiden voyage. And after the Finnish work and sea trials, she left her port accompanied by the Prince Eugen for Operation Rhine. Her mission was to attack British shipping, mainly convoys between Halifax and the British Isles. During World War II, I mean, they had submarines that were sinking just uh, any ship that they came across. But this one was geared to really go against uh, the British ships. And the British dispatched their HMS Hood, the Prince of Wales, to intercept the Bismarck. Well, they caught up with the Bismarck on May 24th, 1941, and an ensuing battle, the hood, the symbol of British sea power, 
was blown apart by a single 15-inch shell from the Bismarck. The Bismarck was something to be reckoned with. Okay? Well, the loss of the hood shocked England, and Churchill gave orders, sink the Bismarck. Do whatever you need to do. So it was a bit elusive, difficult to find. Finally, an ancient swordfish biplane, a biplane, spotted it and launched an aircraft. Uh, it was launched from an aircraft, and it used a single torpedo and shot it to the aft end of the Bismarck, crippling her steering mechanism, her rudder, if you will. And that slowed the Bismarck down enough so that other other British warships could come up and shoot at her. <laughs> and it says that the Halifax, uh, the Halifax was the first to draw blood. After an hour and a half battle, she refused to sink, even though the British had put 400 rounds into her. Big ship. Well, the Germans, knowing that demise was imminent, set off explosive charges to scuttle the ship. And at 1039, the Bismarck went to the bottom. And the cause of this great ship's demise was a damaged rudder. It just brings to to our thinking how much damage we can do with this little member. How much damage. Notice the difference between the two analogies. A horse's strength and power exerted came from within the horse itself and its own will. But the ship was driven by strong winds, those that were external to the ship itself being inanimate. But the bottom line remains that both of them were controlled by something small and in the end controlled by something larger or were controlled as something larger. James, is he's not promoting that we hide behind silence and never say anything, although some of us maybe should. He's just saying that we need to be wise in how we speak. There's much to be said for the saying, think before you speak. I mean, honestly, just stop for a second. How many of us really think of what we're going to say before we speak? I mean, we'd save ourselves a whole lot of trouble if we did. But so few of us do. That is a difficult thing to do. We get in the, the heat of a discussion and, and then out pops something we didn't even anticipate we were going to say and, you know, open mouth, ex, you know, try to get the foot back out. How many times, right? But if we would just think before we spoke. But you see, it isn't even the speaking that's the problem here. And James wants us to know that. There's another thing at play here. James, although he's speaking about the tongue, it's quite obvious from other texts of Scripture that the things that proceed out of the mouth that comes from the tongue come from the heart. So it's all a heart problem. You know, all of our problems are heart problems. On deeper examination of the analogies, the two analogies that James used, you'll see that there's an agent that exercises its will through the bit or the rudder. The rider is the one that pulls on the bit, controls the horse. Yes, the bit does, but the rider's doing it. And then the rudder has a pilot. There's somebody 
piloting that ship. You see, the heart that moves the tongue is what the issue is. And therefore, it's not a matter of just gritting our teeth and making a uh, resolution with our will to control our tongue because it's in the heart that controls our resolutions. And where there is trouble with the tongue, we need to examine our hearts. Are we walking under the control of the Spirit? Are we independent from God's Word? Or are we being circumspect with the way that we speak with one another? Or heaven forbid, about one another? Second point I want to bring out is found in verses 5 and 6. The tongue is a destroyer. It is a destroyer. So also the tongue is a small part of the body as well, and yet it boasts of great things, doesn't it? The tongue is a fire, James teaches. Fire is so destructive because it totally consumes what it destroys. And the focus here is size. James is contrasting the size of the tongue in comparison to the damage it can do, and his intention is clear. The tongue has a huge potential to bring terrible devastation. Now, many of you may have experienced devastating results from gossip or slander against yourself. I have. It's it's a terrible thing. One old preacher that I'm aware of prayed every morning that God would deliver him from the strife of tongues. Why? Why? Well, because you can't control that. You can't control what somebody else is going to say about you. And so he just prayed that God would deliver him that day from the strife of tongues. And in a day and age with the Me Too movement and everything else going on, social media, once you're accused, you're on the defense. In fact, you're actually guilty. (laughs) Right? You're no longer innocent until proven guilty. But people can say anything against you. And so we need to be very, very circumspect in the way that we speak. According to the National Fire Protection Association, cigarette-caused fires result in more than 1,000 civilian deaths and 3,000 critical injuries, many among firefighters, and $400 million in direct property damage each year. That was estimated in 2003. I'm sure it's more now. Here's an illustration for you of something small causing something large. The Chicago Fire of 1871. Supposedly caused by one small lantern kicked over by a cow. The barn started burning. The wind carried the sparks. And in the end, 17,500 buildings were destroyed, 300 people died, and it was estimated 125,000 others were left homeless because a cow kicked over a lantern. The Bible uses fire to demonstrate the power of the tongue in Proverbs 26.21. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is the contentious man to to kindle strife. A contentious man talking with his mouth, contending, can cause much strife. But God also says this, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And when there is no whisperer, 
which is the Bible's way of identifying a gossiper or a slanderer, because they're, you know, when they do this, they're whispering. They don't want others to hear. When a whisperer, where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. And I love that, that it, it doesn't say it stops. It just quiets down, becomes calm again, because with contention, there's all sorts of turmoil. So there are four aspects of the tongue's evil in these few verses that we just looked at. It's a world of iniquity. And never has that been more true than with social media. Oh my gosh. It's like a magnifying glass of iniquity. The tongue is the concentration of iniquity. It was Satan who said five times, I will, I will, I will, I will ascend to the Most High. He said it. Find that in Isaiah 14, in defiance of God. And Satan, again, said in the garden, has God said, and he also said, you surely will not die. Cain denied knowing where his brother Abel was when God asked him and said, am I my brother's keeper? After Brutally murdering him. It's a world of iniquity. What we say can cause such damage. And it goes on and on and on. It defiles the whole body. Secondly, James informs his readers that an uncontrollable tongue will corrupt the individual who uses it. The term defile is used to describe the moral effect on the individual. It stains, in contrast, to the truly religious man who keeps himself unstained or unpolluted by the world, James 1.27. Thirdly, it sets on fire the course of our lives. If the above reference was narrow and addressed the effect of an uncontrolled tongue has on an individual, here James shows the ongoing, ever-widening ripple effects the uncontrolled tongue has on everyone within and maybe outside the sphere of that individual's life. One commentator explained the phrase, the course of our life, like this. He says, quote, The expression serves to convey the thought of life's varied relationships being set ablaze by the uncontrolled tongue. It's a common observation that an unconsidered slanderous report can set a whole community on fire. We saw this in a tribe when we worked with the tribal people. They were very fearful uh, people before the gospel came. They were very, very afraid of people on the coast. And every once in a while, there would be a rumor that would come up from the, course, uh, from the coastline, about five-hour hike away, that would come into the interior tribal village that the government was coming in. They were scared of the government. And they would they would really get all incensed. I mean, it was amazing. It was like a wildfire going through the, the whole tribe that we lived amongst. And it was all by a rumor. Uh, most of the time, I think all the time, when those rumors came, nothing came of it. No government official came. But it would be weeks before that quieted down again. All because of a rumor. It says, it's a common observation an unconsidered slanderous report can set a whole community on fire. A whole nation can be aroused by some vicious propaganda. (laughs) 
setting different classes of men into ruinous conflict? No. And wild, passionate words of national hatred can stir international conflicts whose flames may need to be quenched with rivers of blood. War. War. We need look no further than our Twin Cities in May of 2020 with George Floyd. I'm not talking about the death of George Floyd or the cause of his death. I'm talking about all the talk about it and what happened. You do realize that over a period or over a, a five-mile stretch, 1,500 buildings were looted and set ablaze. 1,500 buildings and $500 million of damage. A lot of that was caused by the verbiage and the false reporting that was going on during that time, stirring people up. And it didn't stop in the Twin Cities, did it? It went worldwide. Do you know that? Right from our own little Minneapolis here. We need to be careful. So it is also something that is set on fire by hell, our tongues. The source being hell. That spark that ignites the flame that devours and destroys all it meets, where does it begin? Hell. Which is the endless fire. The term hell is used here in the New Testament, only here, hell. It's in other places called something other. And it means Gehenna. It refers to a valley south of Jerusalem where there was a dump where all the trash and rubbish, including the dead carcasses of animals, were disposed and burnt. The fires burnt constantly. I've not been to the Holy Land. I don't know. I've not seen this place. I'm reading from a Bible backgrounds book. The history of the area goes back to a time when the Canaanites and even some Israelites performed ritual child sacrifice. Yes, that's right. Israel sacrificed their children, not unlike abortion. King Josiah put an end to it, and from that point on, the place became used only as a massive dump for garbage and refuge and remained a burning and smoldering area for, from that time forward. Jesus referred to it often and marked it as a graphic picture of the place of eternal punishment created for Satan and all who follow him. Not the dump, but hell. You do realize that hell was created for Satan and his angels. But people who insist on following Satan will also have that as their destiny. It was not created for man. It was created for the devil and his angels. Now this is where the spark that lights the flame that sets the course of life aflame and comprises the world of iniquity which possesses the ability to defile the entire body. Beloved, we are very careful at Beacon of Hope with gossip and slander. And so we just want you to be aware of that. And we will come and talk to you. <laughs> not, in a, not in a, you know, whip in our hand type way, but just to quell and quiet. Because just a little bit of gossip can unsettle an entire church. And I've seen churches completely destroyed because of it. Not here. We will not let that happen as your elders. So watch your tongues. Be careful. Okay? And it's so easy, right? It's so easy. At the end of the service, 
or at the end of this sermon, I'll give you some, some tips on how to deal with these things. But honestly, there's two ways to do it. Number one, you watch your own tongue so that you don't talk about other people and other things that you shouldn't be talking about in a negative force, which could be considered slanderous or gossip. But number two, don't listen to it. Some people think they're abdicated from responsibility because they're not saying it, but they sit and listen to it. Stop it. Say, change the subject. Say, oh, I don't think we should talk about that. And say something positive. So there's two ways to deal with that, right? But isn't it amazing that an entire body can be defiled through the words of the mouth? I love... Proverbs 10.19, in the multitude of words there lacketh not sin. That's the way I memorized it in the King James Version. In the multitude of words there lacketh not sin. And in Ecclesiastes 5.2, don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter before God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. Want to get a tattoo? There's one right there. Let my words be few. Put it right down this arm. Get a sleeve with let your words be few. Remind yourself, we must. It's important. It's very serious. And it's serious what he's saying. This is where that spark comes from, hell. Thirdly, the tongue is an uncontrollable force. You have to understand this. Verses 7 and 8 of James chapter 3. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. James states the simple and observable fact. Even though we've tamed many, many beasts, it's amazing to me that we can ride horses Amazing. It's even more amazing to see a whale jump up and take a fish out of a person's hand and not take the person, right? I mean, what prevents that thing from just the person? I'm waiting to read that, right? The whale goes bad. (laughs) I'll stick with Sparky out at Como Zoo. He can't do much damage. But we've done taming of all that, but the tongue, uh uh-uh. It's impossible to do. It's a restless evil, James says. Restless translated means unstable. You can't count on it. The word brings out the sense of fickleness, unpredictability, and it's inconstant. And the tongue could break out in evil at any moment. James says the tongue is notoriously unreliable and constantly prone to spread evil. Haven't you found that in conversations? Gosh, the times, huh? The older we get, the more we realize, wow, how careful we need to be, how easy it is to say something out of turn. And then we say more things out of turn as we're trying to dig out of the hole, typically. Very difficult, this tongue. So the latter part of this verse fits well with James' picture of all the animals. We are able to tame, but the tongue no one can control. But God, but God, he can change things up. The fourth and last 
thing that I want to say is that the tongue has an easy way of moving into hypocrisy. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Nature is consistent. It's constant. A good spring gives forth sweet water. A bad spring gives out polluted water. Trees bear after their kind. Nature is predictable. It's constant. But the tongue is not. And this is wrong. Uh, The best illustration of this is Peter. (laughs) Our friend Peter. And I don't want to throw him under the bus, but I do want to say that at one point he's praising God saying, you are the son of God. And Jesus says, wow, you know, man hasn't taught this. That came right from the Father. The next moment he's saying, you shouldn't go to the cross. And Jesus had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, Peter was like on a mountaintop for about 30 seconds, right? And then all the way to the depths, he's, he's being called Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Wow. That's the way the tongue is. That's how unpredictable it is. How unfitting it is for believers to exhibit such traits. You see, the whole idea in this last portion of James is the idea of compromise and hypocrisy. It's true the Pharisees were known by such characteristics, strutting around as teachers of Israel and yet willing to condemn Christ. But Peter, even though he confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Only a short while afterwards, he denied him three times. James' summary declares loud and clear that these things should not be. The mark of the believer should be constancy, consistency, levelness. And when he speaks, his words should be consistent with the work that God has done in his life. Behold, old things are passed away and all things have become new. Jesus addressed us in Matthew 5.37 where he informed us that we must let our words be consistent. We need to let our yeses be yes and our noes be noes. We need to be clear when we speak. Not fluctuating. No vacillating. So in summary, how can we ever expect to win over this ongoing battle with this little member of our body, the tongue. What hope is there for us when Peter failed miserably? By taking the word of God and believing what he says about us, that's the first place to start. Believe everything he said about the tongue is applied to you, not just me. (laughs) It's applied to all of us as believers. We need to deal with this. It's important. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, and the old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's important. We need to understand that we can change. A transformed nature will produce a transformed behavior. I am not the same man I was 45 years ago. And it's not just because I lost my hair and it went all white. There are other changes, too, in my character because of God's work in my life, and I'm sure in yours. New behavior involves new speech. Oh, does it ever. I'm so glad he did that and is still doing that. 
It's speech that corresponds to a saved and a sanctified life that reflects the holy nature of the one who has given a new life. That's why it was so disconcerting when a pastor was known as a cussing pastor a few years ago. It was a trend, folks. I mean, he'd swear in the pulpit and felt free to do that, all probably based on the fact that there's grace. I'm forgiven for everything. No, wrong. He obviously hadn't read James chapter 3. Or maybe he read it, but he hadn't applied it to his life, right? We need to be careful. And the words that come out of our mouth should reflect a regenerate heart, right? So how do we do that? Well, take this to heart. Twice, in Genesis 18.14 and in Matthew 19.26, we read, with men, this is impossible. But, contrast, with God, all things are possible. I want to encourage you. And keep it in mind that the tongue will defile. It will defy every attempt we make to control it. But above all else, remember that the tongue is an outward display of your heart. So here's three practical steps you can take with your tongue. Number one, let your discussions be about ideas and events, but not about people. Let your discussions be about ideas and events and not about people. Let your posts and let your tweets be about ideas and events and not people. Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss Events, small minds discuss people. Number two, discipline your speech. This presupposes that the problem has been acknowledged and that you are determined to focus on dealing with this area of your Christian life. Then read Psalm 15. Short little psalm, excellent psalm where the instruction is for the righteous person, the one who walks in integrity and speaks truth in their heart. Speaks truth in their heart. And does not slander with his tongue. And does no evil to his neighbor. And does not take up a reproach. That's that other side. You listen to slander and gossip, but don't correct it. You don't take up a reproach against your friend. Because it's not good enough just to not gossip and slander. That's good. Don't get me wrong. But you can't sit by and allow another's name to be dragged through the mud and not say anything. That's to take up a reproach. Our war against the tongue is a very deliberate and intentional one. You've got to put your big boy pants on. You've got to do the reps and build up to this and start practicing. Our war against the tongue is important, and it's God-honoring, without a determined will and a sincere turning to God's enabling grace. The will has got to be there, but it's not will alone. It's then submitting yourself to God supercharging your efforts, your intentions, with his enabling grace. That's the winning combination. You must be determined, you must identify the problem, and you must go at it but you also need the enabling grace and empowerment that the Spirit of God will give you. He lives within you. Thirdly and finally, pray daily for God to protect you. 
pray daily for God to protect you. And here's a prayer that you can pray. Psalm 141.3, you can memorize this. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. There's another one for the eyes too, but I won't bring that up today because we're talking about tongues. Okay? Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 17.3 also says, I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. That's shorter if you have a hard time memory. Okay? Let me encourage you finally. If we're serious about bringing the tongue under the control of the Holy Spirit so that our speech will reflect the regenerate heart that we proclaim to have, and we enact these three practical steps, I guarantee you will see progress. I guarantee it. I'd be willing to bet money on it, but I don't bet. Less frequency of sin with your mouth will take place, and you'll be able to bring greater glory to God than you could even imagine because we're so prone to speak. We speak all the time. And so if you're watching and you're putting these three tips into play and you begin to control your tongue more, you're going to bring more glory to God. And he joys to transform us from glory to glory into the image of his dear son, Jesus Christ. So let's all watch our speech and become better and better. Don't fret if you've had a terrible problem with your tongue and still are struggling with it, or if you're just uh, inconsolable gossip, deal with it. Admit it. Because if you try to hide and you're really a gossip or a slanderer, you'll never fix it. You need to come to grips and humble yourself and admit the problems that you're experiencing. Or if you say things sarcastically that hurt people or cuttingly, Deal with it so that you can bring more glory to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness, your goodness to us, that you don't leave us to ourselves to figure these things out, that you have provided someone like James to instruct us in the way that we should go. We are so grateful that we have such plain teaching from your word, and Father, help us now we pray, to take these truths and apply them to our lives. Father, help us not to shuffle this over to our spouse and say, you really needed to listen to this sermon. But Father, that we take it to ourselves and say, boy, I needed that sermon today. I needed that truth from God's word. And ask your spouse to pray with you so that you might see progress in these areas. And Lord, let us bring much glory to you with our lips, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.